right, if you want to open up to Acts chapter 1, happy May Day, new month. We are starting a new series today on the book of Acts, and it is going to be like a 30-week long series, so get ready. So it'll, it'll take us through the summer, into the fall, all the way to Christmas, uh, into Advent season, and what I'm excited about, though, is the book of Acts is going to take us to the Old Testament, to the Gospels, to the Epistles. There's so much connections here. So even as we go through this whole book over the next number of months, um, I think it's, it's going to be good. So I'm, I'm excited about it. But we're going to start today in Acts chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses. And so if you want to open up, we'll have the words on the screen behind me as well. It says... In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates, but the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And this is how this story opens. Uh, this is right after Easter, and like we are a couple weeks post-Easter now. It is a, a story of after Easter. It's an epic story. I mean, Acts is just a wild like, every chapter is exciting and adventure. I mean, this would be like, if you're watching it on, like, Netflix, you would binge watch this because the next chapter, it just builds and it gets better and better and better. Um, I want to, to look today at just, like, the, the who, what, when, where, why, how, all those W questions as we consider jumping into this series. And really, like, the, the journey it takes us on um, I, I, I summed up with this question, this one commentator named Edgar Johnson Godspeed says, um, and, and it, he says this, he says, where within 80 pages will be found such a varied series of exciting events, trials and riots, persecutions and escapes and martyrdoms, voyages, shipwrecks, rescues, set in that amazing panorama of the ancient world, Rome, Antioch, Philippi, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, Rome, I said that, yes. And with such scenery and settings, the temples, the courts, the prisons, the deserts, the ships, the barracks, theaters, has any opera such variety, a bewildering range of scenes and actions and of speeches passes before the eye of the historian, and in all of them, one sees the providential hand 
that has made and guided this great movement for the salvation of mankind. This is an epic story that we're jumping into. We know that the author is a man named Luke. You probably know him from the Gospel of Luke. He was this physician from Antioch. He was a doctor, um, a great writer, very well detailed, very well researched. And uh, it was written, as we read in the first verse, to someone named Theophilus. Theophilus, uh, there's all sorts of speculation. This could have been a person, or this, this could be like a group of people. Because Theophilus means, Theos is like God, and Phyllis is like love. It, the word means loved by God, or friend of God. Someone, someone who's, this is like a, a very endearing like, term. And so it could mean he's writing to the friend, friends of God, like the people of God. Um, there's also speculation that it's actually a, a specific person. Like, it's, uh, this is a, a man named Theophilus. And, and, and Luke, as he writes Gospel of Luke and then Acts, which is the sequel, in Luke he addresses Theophilus and he calls him most excellent Theophilus, which makes us think that's probably a specific person because that's like a, a term you would use for like a Roman official. And so like maybe Luke is writing to a person or maybe it's a group of people and people ask, well, what do you think? And I think, yeah, I think they're both true because this is what scripture tends to do. Like, Scripture, God's word is written to a context, but it's written for all people at all times. Like, Scripture has a way of doing that. It's this alive and active thing. It, and, it, and it's written to a context that we can't ignore, but then it is also written in the Spirit speaks to us uh, in our context today. And so, Theophilus, lover, loved by God, um, I, I think it, we, can, we could say as, as a community of, of the body of Christ, uh, we we are Theophilus as well, like these dear friends of God. And then what's the purpose? So we have the author, the recipient. The, why is Luke writing this? And I think there's a couple of reasons why, what Luke's purposes are for writing Acts. Um, there's, there's a number of things, but I want to draw attention to the idea of it's a history. Um, it's a defense. It is a guide and an encouragement so it's a history of Christianity, it's a defense of the gospel, it's a guide for the church, and it's an encouragement for the saints. And, and here's how that plays out. It is, it's a history that he's writing. And of scripture, there's different genres of scripture. It's amazing how when you read Luke and Acts, it really reads like a history book. Like it is just this well-researched story of events that happen and the, the chronological order that they go in. Of It feels like a history. But I think what's important is it's, it's an origin story. Of, of how we got this, the church, Christianity. We're 2,000 years removed from this, and it's our origin story. When Luke is writing the gospel of Luke, he opens with these words in Luke chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the world. With this in mind, I, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, there's that term, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke says, I have, I'm writing on this orderly account of everything that happened so that you can know what happened, how we got to this point. 
Like, this is a, a history. It's, a, it's an origin story. Um, I, my wife has been saying this thing about me recently, and I've noticed that there's, like, a theme to it. Like, we'll be hanging out at people's house, and um, she says, Jared loves a good origin story. And, like, at first, I'm, like, I'm like realizing she's saying that a lot. And so, like, we were at some friend's house on Friday night, and, like, especially, like, if you're going to partake in, like, really good food or drink, I love the origin story behind it, right? Like, that is, it's, like, really good coffee, like, to know the origin story, you know, the occasional fermented drink, um, like, a good origin story, especially if the origin story originates in, like, one of the four regions of Scotland, if you're tracking. So, like, those things, I, I like origin stories because what origin stories do is they deepen our experience. When we are partaking in something and we know the origin of it, it deepens our experience with it. it, it it's like we, we have this deeper understanding of what, what's going on. Um, as a pastor, I'm in this process of uh, transferring my ordination and... Uh, like we, as we've moved to this denomination, the Evangelical Covenant, with this church merger, it's so similar to the denomination I came from, but I still have to go through, like, you know, people have to make sure I'm not crazy. So there is accountability with me, <laughs> um, which is a good thing, but there's a lot of work, which I don't like. And um, I had to do this research paper, and it was on, like, church history. And so I decided I'm going to do a, a project on the history of the Evangelical Covenant denomination in Arizona. That sounds like something... I will have a better understanding of the churches that we belong to. And so I'm doing this paper, and I realize that this group gets to Arizona, like, in the 1930s. They start planting, like, these small groups, these small fellowships. They're in downtown Phoenix in the 1930s. They get a building, and they, dedicate, they have this day of celebration of dedication of this building. And so the president of the denomination flies into town. It's this huge celebration for this group of people. And the day of the celebration was December 7th, 1941. Sunday, December 7th, 1941. So they have this huge celebration. President of the denomination comes to town. There's probably like a picnic. They get in their cars and what happens? Four hours behind, they hear, there's this radio announcement that goes out that Pearl Harbor has been attacked. This day of celebration becomes this day that lives in infamy. Like, that, that's incredible. Like, what, that, that story for, for this, this church, while that was happening, there was a young boy, a missionary child, um, who was living outside of Tokyo. His name was Bill Nothelfer. And he, his family was working as missionaries outside of Tokyo when the Doolittle Raid happens. He's like five, six years old. This guy ends up becoming the pastor of this church in 1984. Like, you start, like, I'm reading about this, I'm like, this is amazing, what an incredible story. The origin story deepens our experience of belonging. And, and so when, when we're reading through Acts, this is a history of Christianity. This, this is something that deepens our experience. So this is our story, and it is a wonderful, adventurous, wild story. So, like, you, you get to these things that happen in Acts, and you're like, I cannot believe that happened. There's this, probably, like, here's how this plays out. So there's this story, like, in Acts 20 of, of why we have children's ministry. And, uh, like, why does a church do children's ministry? There's this young boy named Eutychus, and he's sitting in this house, and the apostle Paul's preaching. And he's, they're up on, like, the third floor of this house, and Eutychus is sitting by the window, and Paul apparently is going on and on. It says he literally is going on and on, and, and Eutychus falls asleep. Like, 
makes me feel a little bit better if you fall asleep. Well, they fell asleep on Paul. Eutychus falls out of the window, drops three stories, hits the ground, and dies. And everyone freaks out, and they run outside, and it says that Paul lays hands on him, they pray, he comes back to life. I mean, like, so the children's ministry here, like, as the church grows, um, and it's growing, and we have a ton of kids, and we're trying to figure that out, and we're trying to, like, create these environments that are safe, and people encounter Jesus, and there's some days where it is just, there's just a ton of kids, and we feel overrun, and, like, Megan comes in on a Tuesday, and she's just stressed out, and I'm like, you know, like, no one has fallen out of the third window and died yet, so... Like, we're in some ways doing better than the first century church. And having the origin story, it deepens our experience of belonging, our experience of, of participating and belonging. And as Paul, as, as Luke writes this account, um, it, it's, a, it's a history. It's this history of Christianity. Going back to what Jesus does, to the cross, to the resurrection, to the after Easter story. Uh, second thing is that it's a defense of the gospel. So it's a, it's a history of Christianity. It's also this defense of the gospel. And what's fascinating is when the early church moves post-resurrection into all the world, you get a couple different cases where there is a defense of what we believe. And the first one happens in Acts chapter 4. And Peter, the fisherman, the apostle, um, he, he's, he's living out the kingdom, he's doing the things Jesus tells him, he heals this person, and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, finds out what he's doing, and they put him on trial. These are the guys that crucified Jesus, and they go after Peter, and he, get, he gets up and he gives this defense of what he's doing, living out this gospel message, and, and as, as he's giving this defense of, of what he believes, um, he has this line, and he takes, it's, it's a political jargon that is attributed to Caesar. And uh, he, he, he takes it, and he says, in Jesus Christ, salvation is found in no one else. This gospel, this resurrected Christ that has brought us salvation through the cross and resurrection, that is where our hope lies. Not in the political power of Rome, not in this establishment that we're trying to protect, our hope is in Jesus, in him alone. And like you have this like defense of the gospel that you see, and, and like what we'll find is a lot of these priests become followers of Jesus, and we'll get to that. Then you have another story, another court case that takes place with the apostle Paul later in Acts, and he stands in front of this guy named Festus, which is just a great name, and and, and he's got, Paul's gotten in trouble, you know, everywhere Paul goes, there's like a riot, like we'll see. And uh, he, he's standing before Festus in, in Acts 25, he's giving an account of, of why he's in trouble, and it's all because of this gospel. And he has this gospel defense of, I believe this, and this is what, and like Festus is trying to figure it out, and the conversation is fascinating, because Festus brings in other, other like leaders, and King Agrippa comes in, and he's like, you know, they're, they're charging Paul for, like, disrupting the order, but he's like, it seems like there's this dispute about, like, the Jews say this guy Jesus is dead, and Paul's saying that he's alive, and they, like, want him in prison because of it. He's like, I'm trying to figure all this out. Like, it's just this whole, like, it's almost hilarious as he's trying to figure out what's going on, and, like, Paul gives this defense of what he believes, and he keeps saying, I've done nothing wrong. The book of Acts ends with Paul in prison, in Rome. He's under house arrest. 
And some would say that what Acts, what the Gospel of Luke and Acts is, is Luke is writing a defense to help prepare this court case for Paul in Rome. And, and this, there's some speculation that, that he's writing the story and he's saying, uh, he, he's trying to, to, to commend Christianity to these Roman leaders that have Paul on trial. Like, that, that's one of the thoughts. And, and, and maybe, that's, maybe he's, like, using this gospel story, and that's part of it is he's building this defense. But what you find is that throughout Acts, Luke is, is, is reminding the reader that there's these Roman officials that actually like Christianity. Because we'll get to the persecution, and there's plenty of that. But there's these other stories, like in Acts 13, a guy named Sergius Paulus, the governor of Cyprus, becomes a Christian. And in Acts 16, this wild story of how the church in Philippi is founded, Paul ends up in prison, and then the Roman officials realize that he's a Roman citizen and that they've, they've put him on without a trial. And they have this public apology and they let Paul go free. And in Acts 18, there's a, a guy named Gallio um, who's impartial to the Christians. Like, they, the, the Jewish people want him to go after the Christians because they're having this theological debate, and he's just, he, like, he lets them off the hook. Acts 19, the leaders in Ephesus are, they're showing their concern that Paul's gonna have harm that's done to him. And it's like Luke is reminding, like, all, like the, the church, as it spread throughout the world, there's actually a lot of Roman leaders and officials that, that are like resonating with this message. And we see that as he writes this defense. It's almost like there's this underlying purpose of conversion in Acts, as Luke writes. Like this is a compelling message. Your own people are, are, are resonating with this, this defense of the gospel. Then there's the guide. This is written as a guide for us as a church. It shows us how, how the church goes from this small group of people, these disciples who saw the resurrected Jesus, to like 3 million people, to like 30 million people in 300 years. Well, it just covers the first you know, century or so. But there's this incredible, explosive growth of the church Again, in like impossible surroundings. Like this isn't supposed to happen. But the church grows like crazy. And, and what we find is that the church grows because as we just read in verses four and five and eight, the Holy Spirit shows up. This is this presence of God that is with his people. And Jesus tells the disciples to wait for this gift that is coming. And he tells them to stay in Jerusalem until they are empowered by this Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter two, which we'll get to in a few weeks, you have the birth of the church, the story called Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit comes. And this identity and power is given to this people. And they go from there, and they, they start to spread out all over the world. And you see that the Holy Spirit is guiding the church throughout this whole story. This presence of God with his people empowering them with gifting, empowering them with, with power. That's kind of redundant, but empowers them with power. And in every story, you see the Holy Spirit is, is growing the church. You, you, like it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but you, you could also call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. There's this guide of, of, 
of how we operate as a church. And you see, whenever they, they come to big decisions, it's, handled, it's always handled prayerfully. There's this waiting and listening for God's spirit to move. They make decisions about leadership. They make decisions about where to go. They make decisions about what they can and can't eat. And the Holy Spirit is there guiding them. This is a, a presence-driven community of people. The presence of God guides them. We see that in the book of Acts. And then it's also an encouragement. So it's, it's a history, it's a defense, it's a guide, and it's an encouragement because the church explodes in the midst of persecution. Like unbelievable persecution. By the end, there's this crazy emperor named Nero, and he's like literally lighting Christians on fire. A lot. Like the persecution is, is so great that it should have like completely wiped out this movement. And yet, in the midst of hardship, in the midst of persecution, and in the midst of trials, this church explodes into the Roman Empire. Just, it's almost like the harder they tried to stop it, the more it would would spread. And it grows in the face of persecution. And and remember, the verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and then you will be my witnesses. And he says, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, that word witness, the Greek word for that, is martis. Do you know what word we get from martis? Martyr, yeah. Yeah, you said this is supposed to be encouraging, right? Yeah, like they're called to be these witnesses. Like the story of the gospel is Jesus laid down his life to bring life to others out of love. And these resurrected people full of hope are witnesses of that grace and sacrifice. And we lay down our life, we sacrifice so the love of God can move forward. They're called to be these witnesses. And here's what happens. Like, you see this theme in the midst of all of the hardship that they face, and we'll get to story after story of impossible situations. But, like, if you remove those situations, there's this theme that you could see in each chapter. Let me just read through some of these sentences. So um, it says in Acts 2, 41, those who accepted this message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, but many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Acts 5.14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Acts 6, so the word of the Lord spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. There's that thing about the priests. Acts 8 those who had been scattered, this persecution breaks out, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Acts 9, 31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. Acts 12, but the word of God continued to spread and to flourish Acts 14, Iconium, Paul, and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that the great number of Jews and Greeks believed. It just continues this theme. Acts 14, they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples in Acts 16. So the church, churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Acts 19, in this way the word of the Lord spread wildly and grew. In there is this ongoing theme throughout Acts in the midst of these incredibly hard circumstances. The church just continues to grow. And it's like Luke, when he is writing this and telling these stories, he's reminding followers of Jesus 
Yet it grew in the, in the face of persecution. Like when we go through those challenging times, when we go through those impossible situations, God sometimes does his best work. God is on the move. And he's encouraging, he's encouraging the saints. He's encouraging these people. Trust God. Lean in. The Holy Spirit is with us in the midst of everything that we're going through. It's this history that deepens our understanding of the story that we have. It's this defense that what we believe, what we believe is this transcendent message. This is the message of heaven. It's this guide for us. It's this thing that encourages us in the midst of uh, uncertain circumstances. And then what I love about Acts, we'll close with this, is that it's like the backstory for so many of these epistles that are written. And there's this letter that's written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. We, we know it as Ephesians. And you get the backstory in the book of Acts of how that church is formed in Ephesus. And then later on in Paul's life, he's writing a letter back to that church. And so all of a sudden we have this context and this understanding like, oh yeah, Paul was there or some of these early Christian uh, missionaries were there. Now Paul's writing back and you're starting to connect dots with people that are there. And he says this in Ephesians. And it's kind of like the Theophilus thing. It was written to this context, and yet it's written to us. In light of the ascension, Jesus rises from the dead, calls us to be witnesses. We experience this grace. And Paul gives this instruction in Ephesians 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It sounds like a Bono U2 song, like one, one, one baptism, one God, the father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. This is a big story that we're a part of. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together in every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This encouragement to, to live a life worthy of our calling, of our salvation. People who have been transformed by the grace and love of Jesus. And to be a community that, that shows that love and grace. 
This message that went forth was so different than the way of the world. This God that we follow who loves unconditionally, this God who, who offers us salvation, his mercy, his grace and forgiveness, and he invites us to be a people of hope and resurrection, to live a life worthy of our calling. We're a different type of people. As we spend time in the book of Acts, we're gonna see all of that. The history, the defenses, the guiding, the encouragement. One of the things that we have is uh, prayer journals in the back. We want to encourage, we have about 30 weeks to read the entire book of Acts in the next 30 weeks. Because when we do that, there's something that is formed in us spiritually. We want to be a people that are resurrection people. And this is our origin story. Uh, We're going to close today with communion. And what communion represents is this people who are different. We have this symbolic act that represents the grace of God. And so we're going to close with a liturgy that reminds us of this story. We're called to remember and to proclaim. And today we'll have communion set up in different uh, parts of the room. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to the table today. Um, Tim's going to come back up and close us with a song. Bree's going to walk us through that liturgy. You could get your communion elements, and then when you're ready, to just take them on your own in this time of prayer and reflection. I'm excited to jump into Acts. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word, this old story, an ancient text that you speak to us today. Lord, we're reminded of what, that we build upon this foundation of, of, of generations of your followers, and ultimately you are that foundation. But Lord, over this next 30 weeks, remind us of this origin story that is just so incredible and improbable. Fill us with hope, strengthen our faith. Lord, in a world uh, that is dark and We're reminded how often it's broken, that life is relentless and challenging, that we would be a certain kind of people, resurrection people, known by your love. Lord, we are grateful for the Holy Spirit, that you are with us. We ask that you would meet us today, that you would empower your church to be your people, and that your blessing would be here, that we may be a blessing to others. Lord, as we commune at the table now, we give you this time. It's in your name we pray. Amen.